Forward Guidance is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. I am joined today by an anonymous investor who is known as LaShrub on Twitter. His handle is Agno Stocks with two X's. Shrub, uh, so glad to get you here on Forward Guidance. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be uh, on the show. I'm a big fan, as you know. It's uh, really with pleasure I'm here. The pleasure is all mine, Shrub. How about we start off? You know, you are anonymous, and you know, as you know, you have worked at several institutional hedge funds, and you were working at one of the hedge funds that was involved in the Big Short uh, in 2006, seven, eight. Just tell us about that process. How did you first get involved in hearing about credit default swaps, and uh, what was what was it like? Different times. So my career started in event-driven investing, and I'm still an event-driven investor at heart. Macro for me is like a sideshow or like you want a sprinkle or like a framework. But in reality, what we're trying to achieve is like uh, make money from event-driven situations, uh, special situations. And to be honest, everything is a special situation. The subprime crisis was a special situation. The CRE crisis today is a smaller special situation. Back then, I used to work at one of the hedge funds that was involved in the Big Short, one of the most famous uh, guys that uh, did extremely well out of it. I was a junior in doing special you know, special sits, and it, it was an amazing period at that time to learn. And one of the benefits I think our fund had, and me personally as well, is that we weren't banks analyst or... CDS specialists. So we just saw something from a blank sheet of paper. And that kind of helps you get some clear perspective. And you don't have the burden of knowledge almost. And the burden of knowledge is something that I've carried with me since in many situations. But back then, it was like very, very simple. I mean, just to give you an example, I remember analyzing uh, Royal Bank of Scotland back then, uh, RBS, and they had a couple of trillion of assets on the balance sheet. And they had 25 billion of tangible equity. So it was like 1% tangible equity to assets. And, you know, you would call them up and they would tell you about the income statement. And then you would ask them about the balance sheet and you'd be like, they'd be like, no one asked us about the balance sheet. You know, I remember specifically also Deutsche Bank had an item on their balance sheet called uh, Other, and that was a 400 billion item. That was, uh, you know, I, I remember asking the IR, what's in there? It's like, well, I don't know. I have to get back to you. <laughs> so, so that's the thing about the burden of knowledge that we didn't have back then. It's like, well, hold on. How can you have a bank with a 1% equity to assets? You know, what if your assets only have to go down by 1% and the equity is wiped out? And in the end, what happened is, uh, you know, that equity was wiped out five, six times. Something like that started from a, from a special situation, actually, because back then they had bought ABN AMRO. So when mm-hmm. they bought ABN AMRO, they actually didn't know what they were buying. <laughs> they just bought a bunch of stuff, put on the balance sheet, didn't market properly, didn't understand what they were buying, and you know their equity was wiped out four or five times afterwards. So the first thing to take out of 2008 was you know we didn't have the burden of knowledge. But then the second thing is our portfolio manager and the person that was helping him was actually a genius in how they structured the trade. And the way this, the trade was structured was you know, his motto was always, and that gives away who he is. But you know his motto was watch the downside and the upside will take care of itself. And the way the trade was structured was in a way that you wouldn't lose money. So you would lose like one to make whatever. We had a portfolio that was yielding, say, we were making 10 to 20% a year on the special sit side. And we were spending a little bit of premium 
to fund this trade. And this is a very important point that is, I always try to make this point across to people because I see a lot of people on Twitter, especially because, you know, I, I interact a lot with uh, retail investors, but also with hedge funds, you know, they're like, oh, I'm super bearish. I'm super bullish. It's like, okay, how are you expressing it? Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm short Nvidia. It's like, well, no, that's kind of like a stupid bet. And, and also going back to the subprime crisis, I remember very well, there were people shorting subprime in 2004, they blew up, 2005, they blew up. We started shorting it at 2006. And the whole point was that we were making money and everything else. And we were funding this trade. So when the time came for the trade to work, we were actually up already on everything else and we could carry this trade with us. Whereas I see the mistake that a lot of people are doing now is like they don't have that yield to fund their trade in some way. You know, like someone who's just short Nvidia is like, okay, dude, but are you funding your short Nvidia, for example? I'm not saying that I've never shorted Nvidia in my life. I'm just giving that as an example. It's like on one side, you have a smart trade with no, you know what your downside is. On the other side, you actually have a really stupid trade with unlimited downside. So that's the point I always try to get across, you know, structure your trade in a way that doesn't blow you up and actually in a way, your portfolio in a way that actually makes you money. <laughs> that, that's it. And how would you apply that lesson to today uh, when you're trying to find a hedge? If you you get a little bit bearish, the dumb way is to shorten the video. What, what would be a smart way in, in the way that you see it? Or a less dumb way, maybe I'll put it sure. out. I mean, a less dumb way would be, for example, let, let me give you one, one trade that I was looking at that in my current setup is very difficult to do. But for someone who's a more, a more sophisticated setup, this is the right way to do it. What is super tight right now? It's not, you know, pe people focus on duration, right? Like, oh, the 10 year should be at five or six or three or two. I say, who cares? The important thing to know here is the credit spreads. So the credit spreads now actually could offer a proper asymmetric trade with a very low downside risk. So the triple B versus the 10-year U.S. Treasury is now at 134 basis points. In 2023, it was at 200. So the lowest ever was like 100 bips. Similarly, the high yield index, the Barclays high yield index versus the 10-year is now at 375 bips. And in March 2023, it was 560. So basically... If you want to, going back to the triple B example, 134 bits, you can short that, set it up properly. You short it. Your downside is like 34 bits down to 100 to the lowest ever. But actually, if there is a CRE crisis, a banking crisis, a recession, that 134 is going to be 300 and you make a lot of money. It could be 500. That's the whole beauty of the trade. The whole beauty of the trade was is that you set it up in a way that if it blows up, you make a lot of money. Now, this is a really tough trade to do unless you're an institutional mm -hmm. investor. But I found something that was kind of interesting uh, in a way. I plotted the Russell versus the credit spreads. And there was actually a really, really strong correlation. That broke down the last few months. And I think it's because the Russell, the number one component in the Russell is SMCI, Supermicro. <laughs> And the number two component is micro strategy. So you have two micros. You have the super micro and the micro strategy carrying the Russell and actually breaking down this correlation with credit spreads. But actually, if you look further down the Russell, 30% of the companies, they posted net losses in the last 12 months. So if you want to express this credit spreads blowing up trade in a more simple way, you can buy a put spread on the Russell, be done with it. So for example, in my case, because I have you know, my portfolio has a lot of mid caps. It's more sensible for me 
to have a Russell short, Russell put spreads to protect my own portfolio. But again, that just depends on what I have in my portfolio. But again, this is a really, I, I think this is a, like if institutional investors are listening to this, I think this is a great trade, asymmetric trade, low downside risk. You put it in your portfolio and you just leave it. I, I think it's it's a sensible trade to have from the, asymm- from the asymmetry perspective. Right. So to short investment grade spreads, I think you said 134 basis points. Yeah, triple, triple Bs are like 135 basis points. The lowest was at 100. But even high yield was like 375. And this can easily go to 600 plus a thousand because you know just one point actually on this because people see this tight spreads and they get confused it's like oh everything is great but let's go to the cre example Mm -hmm. so the cre example well cre is commercial uh, commercial real estate yeah commercial real estate which by the way i've listened to like every single one you've done on cre i've listened like you had some really good uh, good people on the topic as well which was really really helpful thank you because that that's the beauty about the platform that we have with Twitter, with the podcast, we actually learn from a lot of people. And I don't think people are going to learn much from me, but I think I can laugh a, laugh a little bit. <laughs> so anyway, so go, go back to the CRE, the, the commercial real estate. It seems like people forget, we had a crisis last year with the Silicon Valley, Signature, and all that stuff. And then this year, yeah, everyone forgot about it for various reasons. Our policymakers made it, provided a cushion, which was the right thing to do. But then you come to this year, And it's like the zombies are out of the closet and the new signature bank is the old signature bank. So NYCB bought the signature bank assets and suddenly the crisis came back to haunt them. And then we had some multifamily issues as well. This is unfinished business from 2023. People, because the the memory cycle of this current market is very short for various reasons, is driven by either retail and the hedge funds are now very monthly focused. They, They forget and they move on to the next thing. And I think they forget that sometimes it takes a while for things to show up. So, for example, it takes several years for asset quality problems in the commercial real estate uh, market to deteriorate and to show. I went back to, to see how delinquencies played out in 2007, for example. 2007, delinquencies in CRE were about like mid-single digits, and they only jumped to 30% by 2009. So think about that. It took two years, but actually, if you were waiting for delinquencies to jump, you blew up because delinquencies were still low in 2008. The whole point was to actually realize that's the trend. This is what's happening. That's the hits that are going to be taken. And you kind of like front load the hits. You know, when I was looking at NYCB, I was like, okay, this is the realization that we have to do, that these problems are still here. We have to be, we have to be aware of them. And this is... You know, they're going to take some time. I don't think we're anywhere near a 2008 scenario, by the way, just to be clear, because the banks are like, starting with my original example of RBS, RBS had 1% equity to assets. Now the banks are really well capitalized. So we're talking about, they're going to take a few hundred billion of write downs down the line. Sure. Okay, fine. But it's not the end of the world for the banking system. It's, it's more going to be like concentrated for a few regionals and a few multifamily CLOs and, you know, CLOs will take the hit, maybe some private uh, vehicles will take it. I don't think it's anywhere near the 2008 scenario. But if there is a sprinkle of a 2008 scenario, then the credit spreads will go much higher than 100 basis points. That's my point. Thanks for that, Shrub. And I guess shorting a investment grade spread, the, the way to do that by yourself would be to short a basket of investment grade bonds and then go long 
treasuries with this similar duration on top of that, but that would consume a lot of balance sheet. So I assume if you're an institutional investor, you could basically get a bank to do that trade for you and you know they would charge you a little bit for it. For retail investors and non-institutional investors, that's a lot harder. So that's why you mentioned a similar thing on the Russell 2000, which is a basket of small cap stocks, which has, unlike the S&P 500, dominated by Magnificent 7, NVIDIA, and the like, is not at an all-time high uh, or, or close to an all-time high. Tell me about that, Shrub, about a trade of seeking out a hedge of shorting an, an index, because I feel like if you're long individual securities, and then you're short an index that is composed of a ton of individual securities, the only way it works out is if you're right that the stocks that you own are better than the index. You know, If you're not a good stock picker, it's not going to work. Right? Correct. So like, generally, I think it's a very bad idea to short an index like NASDAQ, for example, which has the best companies in the world. Even if you go down the, the you know, I, I know people are quite bearish the, some of the big caps, but in reality, you know, these, these are making a lot of money and they're dominating a lot of parts of our life. The Russell, the reason why I mention it, why it's a bit different is that there was this correlation with the credit spreads and it suits. And if you look at the components, they're actually pretty bad companies in reality. And even you have an SMCI. So SMCI, say it's a great company, game changer. It's a few percent of the index. And guess what's going to happen to it, I think, in one month? I think in one month it's going to transition to the S&P. So basically, you had one good company. You're going to take it out of the Russell. You're going to be left, you're going to be left with the other pile of crap. That's why the Russell is like, it, it almost can't win. <laughs> because it, if it finds the next NVIDIA, say, say the SMCI is the next NVIDIA, it's not going to stay in the Russell. That's what makes the Russell... You know, a better hedge than going against the AI wave of uh, of the Nasdaq because it were really in the first wave of AI you don't really want to be short the Nasdaq, but if we have a CRE crisis and the spreads blow up, well you kind of be want to be short the Russell. Just to make a caveat, everything I discuss is about my personal book. So my book is actually a third is mid caps. Like I focus on mid caps. So for me, it suits me. Like if someone owns. If someone's portfolio is passive index long NASDAQ, it's like there's no point putting a Russell short, for example. You know, it's kind of, it has to be a little bit tailor-made as to what you own. Owning mid-caps is a bit like of a masochistic tendency in some way, but, but you know, that's what I do. And that's a corner that I feel more comfortable in. So, Yes, yeah, small, small caps have that issue of if they were such a great company, they would be in the S&P 500. Although some of them you know, started out as a tiny companies and now they've grown into small caps. And I also think that the, the deal quality was so low in 2021 in particular. I just look up today, there were over a thousand IPOs in 2021. Over half of those were SPACs, but still you're talking about a thousand companies going public or, or close to it. And you know, there were some really low quality companies and a lot of those are in the Russell, Russell now. Absolutely. I mean, 30% 30, 30 of them are loss making. And I would say the other 20, 30% are like regional banks or something. So. so what do you think about the overall market now? I mean, why are you in mid caps as opposed to large caps? And I also presume you're not bullish on the mid caps as an asset class necessarily. You're bullish on the stocks that you own that yeah. happen to be uh, uh, mid caps. But if I can introduce you know, the, this concept from your most recent Substack, or as you call it, a shrub stack, and we'll, we'll share a link to that in the description. What does being max stupid mean in the market, and how does that concept apply to whether you think the market might top or not? Yeah, absolutely. So I joke around that the market is run by monkeys. Uh, and, you know, I'm I'm one of them to be honest, uh, uh, quite often. But I, I say it's run by monkeys in a nice and polite way because 
in reality, people in hedge funds are the smartest people I've met in my life, but we're forced to play a game that might be stupid. So I, so I want to be observing. I'm observing what the game is and how it plays out. So about a week ago, um, when I was just thinking through about AI and the market and whether the market topped out, I was like, you know what? What we're missing from this market is we're missing the max stupid. Like I, I want to call it top, but I, do, I can't because I want to see max stupid. And I want to see what we saw in 2021. I want to see like uh, Massachusetts on, uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know if I should call him with his uh, pet name. <laughs> Massa Ponzi son. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, of uh, SoftBank, SoftBank. Yeah, SoftBank, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to see him like in the news raising 100 billion. I want to see, you know, arc-like stocks going through the roof. And, you know, I want to see really, really stupid things. That's what I wanted to see to call the top. And, and as soon as I wrote that piece, I started seeing all these stupid things happening. <laughs> So I'm just going to go through them with you because it's important to understand. The reason why I do this is because I want to understand the zeitgeist and I want to understand how people feel and I, I want to get the sentiment because once I get the sentiment right, I know when I can almost go against it because it's reached max stupid. Because when it's max stupid, it's when everyone is in it. So to give you an idea, last week, this is a true story. I was talking with my barber and he's like, you must be having a great time. He said, and I was like, well, it's okay. Well, the market's flying. You know, I'm long Nvidia. It's like, oh, really? What do you mean? It was like, it's my only stock in my portfolio. And he showed me his portfolio. He had like only Nvidia in his portfolio. Good portfolio. You know, if you backtest that portfolio, pretty good. He did better than me. Okay. So let's be honest about this. But I remember that like this guy in January, 2022, he was cutting my hair and he was telling me about Shopify. So I was like, super nice guy, but he was always like telling me about tech in 2022 and then this time before he didn't tell me. So I was like, okay, that's triggered. That's why I started thinking about the Max Stupid. So here's the things that happened since I was starting to observe the Max Stupid things. We had a big short squeeze in ARM, which I think was the beginning of the end in some way because ARM was a kind of like a semi-orchestrated short squeeze because it was a low-flowed IPO by SoftBank. Then, like I said, I wanted to see SoftBank raising another vision fund. And what happened? Sam Altman comes and says, I want to raise five to seven trillion for the semi to change the semiconductor industry. And then the guy tweets as well, why not eight? And I'm like, okay, yeah, well, I mean, okay, money has no purpose. You know, money has no value anymore. <laughs> then we had uh, Lyft, they misreported their margin guidance by 10x in the post-market. The stock went up 65%. Then they said, oh, we're sorry. And then the stock was still up 20%. Then we had the UBS's uh, video analyst. He came out and said, oh, the lead times for NVIDIA chips are dropping from 11 months to three months. But we think it's really bullish. And it's like, no, it's never bullish. I've been doing commodities all my life. When lead times come down this much, it's never bullish. Then you had Bezos selling billions. And then my favorite one, well, actually, I have a lot of favorite ones. So then you had a bunch of NVIDIA cubs, whereby NVIDIA filed a 13F or something, and it showed the stakes in the companies that it owns. And the companies jumped 50% of the news that NVIDIA, you know, the new, uh, the new god of stocks, had a stake in them. But in reality, like, I was looking at the stocks, it's like, 
damn, I knew that NVIDIA had this thing. So it was public information for the last few years. But I don't know if it's the algos that picked it up or people that really just didn't pay any attention. But these stocks were up 50%. So then after all these max stupid things, we started seeing some red flags picking up. When I started observing all these max stupid things and we put them all together, we also started seeing red flags afterwards, which is what made me feel comfortable that we're getting pretty close to something. The first red flag we had was we had a hot CPI. Hot inflation reading. Yeah, the, we had a hot inflation reading. And to me, once you get a hot inflation reading, we can talk about Tamagotchis and all that stuff later. It means that the Fed's job and the Treasury's job, their hands are, are tight. So that means you're not going to have the easing. They're not going to be able to ease as quickly as before. So that puts a spanner in their works for easing. That's red flag number one. Red flag number two is you had SMCI, the um, super micro. Yeah, it had a gamma squeeze. It had a super micro gamma squeeze whereby the stock ripped and then it just, you know, once it crossed a thousand, because, you know, the monkeys in the market, they love big numbers. They hit the big number. And as soon as they hit the big number, stock goes down to like, now it's at 700. So that was when you see the Reddit crowd blowing up on these things and you had a lot of Reddit people saying, oh my God, SMCI is the best stock in the world. It's trading on 10 times P or whatever. So that kind of, that's when you start worrying about things. So that parabola broke. So that's a warning sign. Uh, the third warning sign I said was Sam Altman raising like five to seven trillion was a warning sign by itself. But then guess who came back? Massa Ponzi son came back. SoftBank came back and said, we're going to raise a hundred billion for a semiconductor fund. It's like, well, there you go. That's the kind of max stupid I wanted to see. I wanted to see SoftBank raising another fund for semiconductors. So they're back. And then another one that was a little bit of a trigger was something I called the realization of cannibalization. And that, what was that? That was basically when Apple came out and said they have an AI tool that's ready to rival Microsoft's uh, Copilot. And then when Sora came out from OpenAI, which was this text-to-video program that was so amazing. I mean, the thing is so impressive. But then when these two things happened, you would expect the AI-driven stocks to actually go up, and they all go, went down. And some stocks like Adobe were hit by 8%. So... That's when I was thinking, you know, maybe the market is realizing there is some cannibalization from this. And the way I was picturing it was, well, you're not going to have a co-pilot. You're, not, you're only going to pay for one co-pilot. You're not going to pay for 10 of them. So maybe there is a saturation with this co-pilot, the co-pilot theme. So it's like having a snake eating its own tail in some way. Like it's one profit pool and they're just eating each other. You know, they're cannibalizing each other. Not now. Just to be clear, I'm actually really, really bullish AI, and I have in my mid-cap portfolio, I actually have a few stocks that are very, you know, I, I think could be big winners from AI. But what I'm saying is, this is a short-term call whereby you have the max stupid signs and you have the red flags. So that's when your alarm bells have to go off and say, you know what, this is a time to just sit back, protect yourself one way or another, take some chips off the table. That's how I see it. And also the reason why I split it between the CPI and the rest is important because the market, there's two markets right now. It's the market XAI and the AI market. So the market, because the guys that invest in AI, they don't really care about the inflation data. Let's be honest about it, right? They just want to buy AI. The market XAI is going to be impacted by inflation being sticky. I'm not saying we're going to have a second wave of inflation. I'm just saying that it's sticky. So that's what's going to impact the market XAI, so the Russells and all that stuff. And on the other hand, the, market, the AI market 
will be impacted by some, you know, small disillusionment, realization of cannibalization, whatever you want to call it, all these red flags that maybe just shake it up a bit until we get the second wave upwards with more applications and all that. Like gold did, Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash HODLFG to learn more. That's vanek.com slash HODLFG. Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you could lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So your, your max stupid thesis, as I understand it, is that you need to see signs of extreme bullishness and speculation for you to call a top on the market and for you to get bearish. And you're seeing some, and maybe you are getting close to actually being, being able to call a top. But my question, Shrub, is about time horizon. Is this a long-term call or a short-term call? In other words, do you think that the a bull market is intact and that there will be a five to 10% correction, you know, over the next month or so, which is extremely common during bull markets? Or do you think, no, the long term trend is actually downwards and that a bear market will resume? Because there were, you know, I saw some charts of the S&P of today overlaid with the S&P of 1929. (laughs) So I'm going to come out and say that it's just that we're talking about a five to 10% correction. Because let's not forget, it's an election year. And it's an election year. And to be honest, you know, I think in an election year, they're not going to let things break down. I don't want people to be bared up. I want to be optimistic that AI is like a game changer and we should be excited about a lot of things, but we should also just be aware. Uh, we should also be cautious. Let's put it this way. Cautious, because if you get a 5 to 10% correction, you kind of want to be able to buy into into the run-up uh, into the election. So, for example, if you take it a typical election year, February to March, second half of February to March is actually the weakest part in an election year. So I'm a believer that I want to have chips to buy into the election. And actually, I just found out, uh, actually, it's an interesting chart. Right? Let me just tell you, because I see some similarities with the 70s here. So 1974, we had a CPI of 12% and the S&P was down 30%. 2022, we had a CPI of 7% and the S&P was down 19%. Bear in mind, both situations came up from an energy crisis and a stagflationary inflationary environment. Now, 1975, we had a CPI of 7 and the S&P was up 32%. And in 2023, we had a CPI of 3% and an S&P of 24%. So there are some parallel images so far. 1976, we had a CPI of 5% and the S&P was up 19%. 2024, 1976 was also an election year. So I think we're going to have a similar environment as 1976, where inflation is still going to be kind of sticky, but the market is going to close up on the year. I don't think we're going to, I think the market will close up on the year. Let's put it this way. So interesting, your thought on, on Max Stupid. What would it have to take for you to? think that there's a bear market, not just, you know, oh, over the next month, there could be a small correction, but, you know, the next move is lower because you know, I'm obviously was not following the market uh, during the dot-com bubble. 
but reading books like smartest guys in the room about enron i mean there's there are things in the, that went on during the dot-com bubble that we are nowhere close to such as uh fiber swaps where telecom companies uh basically exchanged connectivity with each other their sale of connectivity to the other company they booked that as earnings and net income and, and then they booked their purchase of their fiber from the other company as depreciation over the next 20 years. So even though no cash exchange hands, both companies made money. I mean, maybe that's happening now, but I don't think it is. And yeah, we're, we're nowhere close to that in terms of fraud or in terms of you know, low quality, speculative, junky, hypey narrative companies going public in 2021. I mean, I'm someone who was way too, you know, I, was, I turned skeptical of the market in 2021 way too early. I, you know, I admit that. But I mean, we're nowhere close to there now. Like it's 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 legitimate companies that have appreciated rapidly, and maybe they're overvalued. But you're not seeing IPOs of, of, of any scale. Absolutely. Look, I, I agree 100. percent And let's take the hyperscalers. You know, the Max Seven, Meta. Listen to their growth rates. Meta, 25 percent year-on-year revenue, top-line growth. Microsoft, 18 percent top-line growth. Google, 14 percent. Amazon, 14 percent. Tesla, 3 percent. Apple, 2 percent. Okay, so that's the two outliers. But the hyperscalers were actually growing top line by 20%, and they're on you know, 20, 30 times P. They're expensive, but they're not ridiculous. If the majority of the NASDAQ is expensive, but not ridiculous, that's really not how 2000 was. 2000 was kind of stupid. And also, let's not even go to 2000. Let's do 2021. I mean, 2021, we saw some real junk. All that junk, you know, by the way, is now in the Russell. <laughs> Or is bankrupt. I mean, there, there were companies that like mathematically were going to go bankrupt. And Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you still have it. So actually, if you look at the NASDAQ EPS uh, pro- progression, the NASDAQ EPS is at an all-time high growing, whereas the EPS of the, of the Russell is actually rolling over. And you can also make an argument that uh, I think, you know, Gavin Baker, who's a, the CIO of a treatise, he said the AI is a game of emperors. Uh, it's no longer a game of kings. So, the, you know, these companies... How, what, what P multiple do you want to put on an emperor? 20 or 30? Whatever you put, is, it, it's okay. But having said that, let's think about one area where we had this max stupid. So, so okay, so on the NASDAQ, we can say, you know what? 10% correction gets you to 20 times on, you know, micro. So if, if Microsoft is on 35 times, say it goes down 20%, you know, you're probably going to have a lot of buyers of Microsoft that, uh, you know, 25 times earnings. But let's say... But here's one thing that maybe that's the reason why we haven't seen Max Stupid. And, and this is another theory I'm developing <laughs> as I'm going along. So what's changed over the years? The one thing that's changed is that the VC industry has become massive. So there's $2 trillion of AUM trapped in venture capital. And all that crap that we saw in the SPACs in 2021 was actually offloaded by venture capital. But they did a, they, you know, they did a bunch of, of more deals and that's still stuck there. And they probably haven't taken the marks properly. And just to, as a case in point, the poster child of AI, OpenAI, they raised 100 billion, they raised at 100 billion valuation in the private markets. And you have a lot of unicorns still in the private markets that if you put them in the public markets today, they wouldn't be trading at a third of where they're trading. So maybe, just maybe, there's a lot of Max Stupid still in the private markets uh, that's, that's like bag holders from 2021, 2022. And we still haven't seen that hitting the public markets. Maybe the max stupid is when we're going to see all that come in the market because we haven't seen any IPOs yet, apart from ARM. So where are the IPOs? And maybe 
just maybe they don't want to take the marks. Maybe that's why they're not IPOing them. Maybe we need to see the market much higher for them to dump stock because you know I have I have certain axioms that I say you know that Wall Street always finds a way to maximize profits, but also greed always takes over. And my other axiom, which is a classic one now, is like a monkey and his money are soon parted, because if the if there's like money in venture capital that's trapped. Wall Street is going to be like, well, you know what? I want a piece of that. <laughs> so you will see IPOs at some point if, if it stays here. To clarify, though, on the private markets, there is also an incentive not to IPO certain of these assets. Incentive number one, mark to market, the most important incentive. I mean, it's a beautiful thing not to have a mark to market on something super volatile with no earnings. The second incentive is that there's a lot of money being made by trading these things in the secondary market. So for example, if I want to go and buy now a piece of SpaceX say, at 150 billion, 200 billion valuation, I'm going to pay some broker like an obscene amount of money, maybe three, 5% in fees to get that. So the broker makes a lot more money. Like if I did the same transaction in the public markets, I'd pay a few basis points. So there's a lot of money in the secondary trading and there's a lot of money uh, people are making a lot of money in the venture capital secondary space. So maybe that's one incentive to just keep it private. So the incentives are building up not to, uh, not to IPO and keep some max stupid away from the public markets. Right. When you said Wall Street wants a piece of that venture capital action, they don't necessarily want to buy it, but they want to make money from underwriting the deals. And maybe the to, for those companies to go public, their speculation needs to uh, increase. There's a tremendous appetite now for high-quality growth companies such as Mag7, but for speculative, junky companies, maybe that are some of these VC companies, the, I don't know if the market's ready for that. I mean, we'll see. I agree 100%. I, I think you, you already see some companies that they're trading badly. I mean, ARC, okay, let's see where ARC is, for example. So ARC is like the bellwether that people should be tracking for Max Stupid, and ARC is at 48 and the highs was 160. ARC hasn't done anything even since 2022. So, you know, that's that's a good bellwether to keep, you know, no, not being offensive to Kathy Wood and just saying, you know, her stocks are all unprofitable tech. So that should be uh, the bellwether to track for Max Stupid. So you can argue actually that, you know, the emperors, the Max 7, uh, the market is being rational, driving them to the moon because they're actually making money. Whereas, you know, Kathy's stocks are not making money. And actually, at some point, they're going to run out of money at a time when money is very expensive. Right. So how, how do you think about investing in AI? Tell us about the, you know, the mid-cap stocks that you own. How many of them are leveraged to AI uh, versus the, the large caps? And what are sort of your investment thesis? You know, when you want to own a stock, what is it that, that you look for and why? I have a value approach to start with. So my, my stocks are, you know, usually have a value approach or a thematic approach. And they have to fit a certain budget. So I own, for example, a coal stock. C-O-A-L, coal. Yeah, C-O-A-L, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I own, for example, a coal stock that um, it's a 3 billion market cap and it makes the same amount of free cash flow yield as ARM at 724 million. But ARM is 35 times bigger. So just to give you an example, you know, how, how mispriced uh, things are. But on the AI side, I'll tell you that the two stocks that I have that are, you know, decent part of my portfolio is, you know, one is um, a semiconductor stock that has a leverage to the uh, optical side, because let's put it this way, you is the king of the data center, but how are you going to get that king to work faster is that you need to connect it with optics to make everything faster. So one of the, my themes I invest in AI is actually on the optics side, 
because the optics are going to drive things much, much, much faster in a data center, if it makes sense. You know, because the GPU became so fast, but everything that's connected to the GPU, let's put it this way. It's like putting Messi to play with me uh, and you, no offense, yeah. Uh, yeah, play yeah. football with us. You kind of want to have that connectivity to be fast as well. And that's why optics is going to be a great place to invest in the AI side because data centers are still growing. The other name that I have, I don't mind mentioning it because it's the first name I mentioned in the first podcast I did two years ago and I haven't sold it. So I can, I, I'm, I'm not going to be accused of pumping. <laughs> it's a company called uh, Digimark. And I, I'll, I'll tell you what, I don't like investing. I'll say exactly the same thing I said two years ago. I don't like investing in non-profitable stocks, but I allow myself a 5% allocation or whatever to buy one non-profitable stock that could multi-bag. I bought this stock two years ago because I'm a big believer in recycling as a, has a massive future potential. And what these guys do is Digimark puts digital watermarks around uh, packaging and they work very closely with Walmart. And the watermark basically is invisible and it's like a form of barcode in every piece of the package, which allows you, first of all, to scan it very easily at the checkout, but secondly, to recycle, to recycle it very well, because if you put a detector at your recycling uh, conveyor belt, even if you shred the bloody thing, it can pick up what it is. If it's like, you can put the information mm -hmm. on the watermark and say, this is PET, this is PP, this is uh, food packaging or whatever. So you can, it speeds up, it enables the recycling to take place. And I'm very excited about this part of Digimark because in Europe where, I, where I'm based, recycling will be a major uh, piece. And we have a lot of legislation. Also, we're gonna have a plastics tax. So there's a big incentive for people to, uh, for this to work. And there is an alliance actually in Europe um, that the Holy Grail Alliance, and they will be rolling this out in France with Digimark at the centerpiece where you're gonna have watermarks and recycling centers. Now, where does this fit, where does this fit in AI? As it so happens, digital watermarks can also be applied in generative AI. So there was a very interesting press release a few months ago whereby there was a statement from the, where, from the White House about the safe and secure and trustworthy AI. And the reason why the White House panicked is because we're entering an election year and we're gonna have a lot of deep fakes. Um, so that statement to safeguard AI was signed by Microsoft, Adobe, uh, Meta, and a little company called Digimark. <laughs> And Digimark, they're trying to set the standard with the coalition of content provenance authenticity is called C2PA, whereby they just entered this coalition where Microsoft, Adobe, and all those are, are part. And there's a, they're chairing this committee on watermarking generative AI with Adobe. So hmm. basically, I own this stock not for this reason, but suddenly this stock has a generative AI content. And this is important because as in an election year, it actually becomes an election play, especially given the White House statement. It means that maybe they're working on something to make generative AI accountable and trustworthy, whereby you insert a digital watermark and people know where it came from and who made it and if it's original. So for example, you know, I saw a photo of Taylor Swift 
holding a vote Trump sign. And I actually thought initially it's, a, it, it's real. And I'm like, I better check this. So I Googled it and said, it's fake. Whereas if I have the watermark, I can just check, okay, that's a fake photo. So to the point, it's a out of the box way to play AI for me. I'm actually kind of excited for it. It's not the end of the world for me if it doesn't work on the general AI thing because I actually only for recycling, but I think it's some it's a theme that's really, really big and very, very important for what's coming because generative AI just came out and people are going to be confused. People will not know how to protect themselves. And, and you know, making the technology is one thing, but safeguarding it and making it trustworthy is going to be another. And that's the best way I could think of playing it. And obviously... Caveat, it's a very risky play. Nothing here is financial advice. I've owned this stock for two years. You know, it has downside, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like a non-profitable uh, company. So that's the disclaimer at the end of, the, <laughs> of my pitch. Mm, very interesting. And what about in the, the large cap space or the, the MAG7? Do you have a position in any you know, of those magnificent seven stocks? And what do you think about their valuation and i presume you know that has your view on that has a lot of that will affect your view on the s&p 500 since over 20 percent, maybe even close to 30 percent of of the s&p 500 is is th- those seven stocks yeah i i don't have a i don't have a position right now uh in any of them i actually have one short position on one of them <laughs> is it a car company <laughs> well okay you got me there <laughs> Well, the car company, because it's quite specific, and I actually do a lot of work on the battery metals, and I'm short the car company not because of... I actually think the guy's a genius, don't get me wrong, but I think he has a problem of it. I think 2024 is going to be a transition year for the car company. So, uh, you know, given what I said earlier, you, you had the hyperscalers growing 20% a year and trading at 20, 30 times P, and the car company is growing 3% top line and is trading at 60 times. Great company and all that, but 2024 is going to be a very tough year with intense competition from China mm-hmm. and Europe. Margins are going to get hit. You know, it's margins now collapsed to that of a car company. I think he's going to have a tough time and he will be saved probably by his robot at some point. But 2024, nah, I, I think it's going to be a tough year for him. By his robot, you mean self-driving? Uh, no, I mean the uh, Optimus. Oh, that I mean, thing? The, oh. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're talking about like five years' time. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm I mean, even his away. biographer doesn't think too highly of that, I think. Yeah. The, the robot? Yeah, like me neither. That's why, that's why I'm comfortable being short. <laughs> so, yeah. Regarding the others, though, I think, look, the others, they're a bit expensive. But to me, it's not about the multiple. It's about realizing the realization of cannibalization. So, for example, Google. Let's take Google, for example. Google trades at 20 times speed. My younger self would be like, this is a really cheap company. I'm going to buy Google. My older self remembers Yahoo, which is a really bad example because I actually love Google as a product. But Yahoo in 2000, if you remember their interface, had the banners. I don't know if you remember the Yahoo interface. It had all these banners and they were selling you ads on the banners. And then out this came this company called Google. And it had a very clean page and you would search and it would you know, they would make money by getting the results on the front page. Um, And you would just, you know, the companies would pay to be at the top. Obviously, Google ate Yahoo's lunch because Yahoo wouldn't change. And now Google, I don't know, I I would be concerned. Like I've used perplexity. I don't know if you've used perplexity.ai, but it's pretty pretty impressive. 
and then you use your co-pilots. They're pretty impressive. So I probably use Google half of what I used to already. And I'm not really excited about buying Google at 20 times earnings. So that's what my older self would just say, you know what, stay away from a potential value trap. But, you know, if Amazon corrects, I'd rather buy Amazon, for example, if Microsoft corrects, I'd rather buy Microsoft. So, but, you know, they're not at a valuation that I would get excited. Like I got excited to buy Meta last year, one year ago. I got excited by that because it was 10 times earnings. So I yeah. bought it and I'm a joker because I sold it after 30%. But, you know, that's it is what it is. Yeah. And, you know, now, for example, I look at the same thing about, you know, the one company that looks exactly like Meta. Well, sorry, I'm not going to say exactly like Meta, but similar setup to Meta today is like Alibaba. So Alibaba, you're like 200 billion market cap. Half of it is cash trading at eight times earnings. And they're probably going to be the dominant company on AI in China. And if you can stomach owning anything in China, you know, that excites me. 10 times more than owning any Mac 7 stock right now. And I own Alibaba, uh, by the way, but um, it's going to be a nerve-wracking trade, <laughs> I think. Uh, that's so interesting. Tell us about your thesis on Alibaba and uh, China. You know, wh- why are these stocks so cheap? You, you know, and if you think Google might be a value trap, why isn't Alibaba a value trap? And especially, I might say, you know, I think Google's margins on its search business, which is pretty much the business, is probably higher than the the retail business of Alibaba. Although re- Baba, Alibaba does a lot of other things, I know. Look, it's a very very simple story. So basically, you know, I have a view on China. So you know, my my view is you have to figure out what the reaction function of policymakers is to make an investment. So yeah, you know, I'm joking about uh, you know Yellen being uh, like a Tamagotchi in the sense that you need to figure out what her reaction function is to see how she acts. And then with China, you have to do the same. It's like, when do these guys act? January being long China, I had calls on the Chinese index in January. And I'm like, the market was just in free fall. And at the time I, you know, I said, I don't want to own any stocks in China because I don't trust them, but I'm willing to buy calls. At some point, the market really took a hit. And then when the Hong Kong index hit 15,000, it started bouncing and you started seeing Premier League coming out and saying, we're going to take tough measures. We're going to ban short selling and we're going to stop uh, funds from selling uh, any stock. So that was at 15,000. So I, I told myself, hold on, what if their reaction function is to defend the Hong Kong 15,000 level? By the way, that's like a, I don't know. I mean, the Chinese market hit like a 10 year low or something, something stupid. So I'm like, you know what? I, I broke my, um, discipline. And instead of buying calls, I actually bought stock. I found the biggest and the most liquid stock. So Alibaba, you have Tencent as well, but I didn't want to do the gaming side, but you had Baba, which was like half of his market cap was in cash, uh, with a dominant position in uh, Alipay and e-commerce, also a hyperscaler, by the way. And then like, well, you know what? I'll just buy this and see if they manage to defend the HSI 15,000 level. So what you saw in the next few weeks, you saw them just coming in and trying to stabilize and prop the stock market. So honestly, my trade is that stupid. I'm just watching the 15,000 level. If it breaks it, I'll probably bail out. But in the meantime, I think the policymakers panicked. And when the policymakers panic, the markets stop panicking. 
And I think what's going to happen at some point as well, what you're going to see, because they have so much cash on their balance sheet, I think the policymakers will be not incentivizing, pushing these companies to be buying the stock to support their share prices. With buyback? Yeah, I think, I think they're going to be encouraged to do buybacks. Any other positions in the Chinese market? There's the, you know, there's the banks and the real estate market, which that's kind of the, the center of the... the, the yeah, I don't touch that because I, I think one should completely avoid banks, completely avoid real estate developers. Uh, stick to like, look, China's an emerging market. So if you want to play an emerging market, the only way you do it is uh, someone smarter than me uh, told me that. I think it was Porter Collins. <laughs> he said, look, you just buy the index or you buy the biggest company. So you either buy the index, the Queb or the FXI, which are the ETFs of China, or you buy Alibaba or Tencent or whatever. And just keep it simple. There's no point going into the, like, the smaller stuff. Definitely, I wouldn't touch the banks. One thing that, I really, that really, really surprised me, and I think it might surprise you too, is that a stock like Sinoc and PetroChina is ripping right now. It's at the highs. I looked at it as like, I was really surprised because I was, you know, I had shares in Petrobras and, you know, as another emerging market company, but I wouldn't think that Sinoc and PetroChina would actually be at all time high right now. It's bizarre because the Chinese market, like people, people don't pay attention to this, but actually the Chinese market looks a lot like the U.S. market in 2008 and 2022 at the same time. So 2008 in the sense that, you know, all the banks are suffering, you have the real estate write downs. And everything is down, including tech. Like in 2008, tech was down as well in the U.S. And then in 2022, U.S. tech was down, but energy was up. So today you have a weird situation in China where energy is all-time high and tech is down the toilet and everything else is wobbly and nothing else is working. So it's kind of a very strange uh, situation. I mean, we had some positive travel data uh, last weekend from, from the Chinese holiday. So some green shoots like... E-commerce activity at Mutan was up 36%. You had like Beijing uh, tourist spend was up 60%. Train travel was up 60% year on year. So you had green shoots, but to be honest, China will be a sluggish economy. Let's be honest about it. So this is a, it's more like a value play to just put aside and just hope for the best and just pray they don't invade Taiwan. Otherwise, all bets, all bets are off. China is really interesting. Sorry to interrupt. Just want to tell you about BlockWorks upcoming crypto symposium in London. The Digital Asset Summit, which is running from March 18th to March 20th. Everyone in crypto is going to be there, not just the experts and policymakers, but the real industry leaders writing the checks. Over $800 billion in assets is going to be represented. Anyone who's anyone in crypto is going to be there. So if you're into crypto and you haven't bought your ticket yet, the time is now to get your ticket. I would not wait any longer. We've got some exciting guests on the macro side too. Julian Brigden, Michael Howell. And yes, I can confirm at last the rumors are true. Joseph Wang, the Fed guy himself, is going to be there too. I'll be hosting a panel with these macro heavyweights that you don't want to miss, so be there or be square. Click the link in the description and use code FG10 to get 10% off. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Uh, let's go back to the States. What do you mean about Secretary Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, being Tamaguchi? What, what is Tamaguchi and how does that apply to inflation? Sorry. And the market. Tamagotchi. Gotcha. I'll tell you why. Because Tamaguchi is Lagarde, because she likes Gucci. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, but La Yellen is a Tamagotchi. <laughs> so so it's, it's, just a, it's just a joke that I've made that Tamagotchi was this little Japanese toy that you were probably, 
I don't know if you saw them in your childhood. You probably didn't. So there was these Chinese toys that you would feed them. They would get hungry and you had to feed them to be happy. <laughs> and then you had to, you know, they were tired. You had to put them to sleep. So they had a reaction, reaction function that you had to deal with in some way. So I kind of joked, you know, I, I kind of joked because I like to visualize things that sec that Yellen, and but when I say Yellen, I kind of mean the treasury and the policymakers, but I, I, I like to vision uh, Yellen doing it. She's like a Tamagotchi in the sense that she has a reaction function. And what, it, what that reaction function is, you have to figure out what triggers her. So one very simple aspect of the reaction function, you know, I break down inflation in two parts. So I think of inflation as being composed of wealthflation, and that's the price of financial assets going up or real estate or, you know, cost of private schools, for example. And then the second component is plebflation, which is what the average person feels like uh, you and me. So the plebs, what we're feeling. In reality, people get confused sometimes because I, I saw a lot of them saying, oh, the market is all-time highs. The market can't, uh, you know, the, the Fed uh, can't cut rates. It's like, no, 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 that's completely wrong. That's wealthflation. Market going up is wealthflation. The policymakers want wealthflation because they can get tax proceeds and also their donors make a lot of money. And also, if they created all of wealthflation, they can go on the board of a hedge fund and make a lot of money themselves. So what they care about is, so the policymakers can generate wealthflation and they want that as long as plebflation stays below, say, 6%. Which is the price of gasoline, the price of exactly. broccoli, the price of exactly. hot dogs. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so if plebflation is below 6%, food and all that stuff, then Tamagotchi Yellen is happy to do whatever she wants. She can drain the TGA. She can do whatever she wants with the QRA. She can pump the market as she wishes, drain the RRP, do whatever she wants, as long as plebflation is low. But if plebflation is high... You're entering the danger zone of the 1970s. That's kind of what we saw in 2022. So we've experienced it firsthand. And I think the hot inflation print last week kind of brings back some of those fears. That's why the market, I think, is going to be nervous. Maybe it stays nervous until the next CPI, by the way, because we only had one hot print. Let's be honest about it. I'm actually a believer that inflation is going to trend down, but you can't have one hot print, you probably need another two, three hot prints to actually change the direction. Like if you get three hot prints, then we can talk about a proper return uh, of plebflation. And then the Tamagotchi reaction function will become more jittery in some way. I'll give you another example of the reaction mm -hmm. function to think about it. What happened in November? In November, I took a, so when the US 10 year crossed 5%, when people were thinking about the QRA and what the Fed would do and what, you know, if, I mean, you've had a lot of pro programs on the QRA where, you know, Andy Costin is like the legend on, on QRA breakdowns and you've had him on, which actually helped me a lot <laughs> at the time. But the QRA was the mix between bonds and coup um, coupons and bills. So the more bills you have, the more bullish it is. The less bills you have, the more bearish it is. So when, when people were predicting what she would do. I had a very simple view at the time. The US 10 year was across 5%. So the Tamagotchi reaction function would say, US 10 year above 5%, bad, act, do something. So, and she did, she came in, 
And the QRA came with 58% bills instead of 20%. It's like a Vita Peron, you know, that's kind of like uh, Argentina style. Mm -hmm. so, but, you know, but the reason why she did it is because the Tamagotchi reaction function was triggered. 5% 10-year. Um, you know, similarly, well, with the inflation, you know, last year, you know, one time that this reaction function confused me a little was when they, you know, we had like a little rough start of the year. The market just wobbled, if you remember, the first week. And as soon as the market wobbled, they came out and they said, uh, they sent uh, Laurie Logan to say that the Fed would uh, slow down QT because the RP is drained. So that was one example of a reaction function that confused me a little bit because the market was only down like 1%. The 10-year was like pretty low. So I was wondering what drove them to come out and guide on a slowing down of QT. And uh, you know, then it kind of realized that uh, we're not in an election cycle. We're in a re-election cycle. It's a re-election cycle. So they're preparing. You know, They're keeping that in their arsenal or a second half boost if they need to. That's basically, as, it's as simple as that. So wealthflation is the price of like Costco stock. Plebflation is the price of the hot dog at Costco. Plebflation has been falling, you know, actual prices have been falling uh, last year. Not prices have been falling, but the rate of increase of prices has been falling uh, last year. So that gave Secretary Yellen uh, some, some room to issue bills. How much do you think it uh, these plumbing things matter to such as like the stock market. And I'll you know, break down some of the acronyms you use. So Treasury General Account, that's the Treasury's bank account with the Federal Reserve, T that's TGA. QRA is the quarterly refunding announcement we had uh, you know, in early November last year that you said uh, they, that's where they issued bulls and that coincided, uh, they issued bills and that coincided with a huge bullish move in bonds and stocks. Uh, we had one you know, earlier this quarter. RRP is the uh, reverse repo facility at the Fed, and QT is the Fed's balance sheet quantitative tightening. Like, how much do you think that this uh, actually you know, matters? A lot of people say, oh, when the Fed's doing quantitative easing, stocks will go up. When the Fed's doing quantitative tightening, stocks will go down. Uh, you know, that theory is not working out so well as the Fed continues to reduce its balance sheet via quantitative, quantitative tightening and stocks go up. Then you can make it more complicated by introducing the Treasury and how much issuance is is in longer duration papers such as bonds versus versus bills and i think like it is a fact that when the treasury issues more bills than bonds the duration in the in the system goes down and it's also generally a fact that that is going to require less balance sheet so it's like less volatile for the banks and the the holders of that paper now where, where it becomes like a a claim or a speculative claim is oh that's you know bullish for stocks or other assets outside of the fixed income markets you know i'm of the belief that you know these things are worthy to be studied in their own right. So you know, even people are like, oh, it doesn't matter for stocks that, I mean, they're interesting to me. And I think that you know, people should uh, study them and promote the study of them. But what is your view on how much, let's say, bill issuance impacts the stock market or draining of the reverse repo impacts the stock market? So here's the funny part. So I've been doing this for 18 years. When's the first time you think that I bothered about the QRA? November? Uh, yeah, July. That's right. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So I've done pretty okay for 17 years without knowing what the QRA is, without caring about the RP, without caring about the TGA. But I'm kind of like a you know special sits equity investor with a, I do more distressed credit stuff as well, but you know, it kind of never really impacted me as such. But then, and I was speaking with Andy Costin about it, who actually was the first one to bring it to my attention, but 
And, and this is this is the key question I was having. Is it did the July one? Is it because Yellen changed implicit guidance of an 80-20 split between coupons and bills that the QRA matters again? Or is it because the issuance became so big that actually it's creating crowding out? Like I remember at university when I, you know, I studied, uh, I studied economics as well. You know, they were talking about crowding out. Crowding out is a very classic concept whereby government issuance crowds out private investment. But in reality, we never really saw crowding out in our lifetime. So I've been wondering if what we saw in July and what we saw the last six months is a result of crowding out because now we have 120% debt to GDP with 6 to 8% fiscal deficits. So maybe that's why it matters. That's one scenario. The second scenario is that Yellen has been masterful in changing the allocation because the QT that the Fed does, it's actually automatic. But the QRA is supposed to be like implicitly, like I said, 80-20, but she went as high as 58% on the bill side. So does it matter because she actually tweaked it more than uh, the guidelines? And in a way... Uh, you know, there was a fantastic piece by uh, Steve Miran, which I think you had on your show as well, whereby he kind of shows that Yellen took over the monetary policy, which was a fascinating way of looking at it. And it kind of shows the Tamagotchi reaction function not being just about fiscal anymore, but it's also about monetary. And I mean, I, I can walk through, well, it's, it's kind of simple. So, you know, the Fed has the RP and they're issuing, you know, where they're borrowing from the markets. And then the treasury is issuing bills where they're borrowing from the markets. So if the treasury issues a lot of bills, it's competing against the RP and it drains the RP. So the treasury can dictate the timing on when QT would, can accelerate the timing of QT. That's one thing. And then two, the treasury can actually dampen the effect of QT because as the Fed is doing QT, the other guys are issuing bills and stimulating the economy. So maybe, maybe just maybe, hear me out on this one because I had this realization today. We are thinking whether Powell is, was going to be, remember it was the, the debate if Powell is going to be like Volcker or like Birds. What if Powell is Volcker and Yellen is Birds? <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. Because I was thinking, I mean, they're competing against each other. One is pulling one side. The other one is pulling the other side. And we have what we have. And it's actually, in some way, it's doing a bit of disservice because the Fed wants to cut rates. And now financial conditions have eased because of treasury actions. And they can't cut rates. So basically, there you go. You have basically, you have Volcker and Burns in the same room. <laughs> That's a really interesting argument, Shrub. Do, do you kind of assume there, is that assumption present in, in that argument that bank loans to the Fed that are reverse repo is less stimulative than bank reserves? In other words, that the draining of the reverse repo facility is moderately stimulative effect. I, you know, I mean, Joseph Wang has said he considers that moderately stimulative, but what is so bullish about a bank having an excess reserve instead of having a loan to the Fed. And you know, the Federal Reserve 
need doesn't need to borrow money, but it does to soak up additional liquidity from 2020, 2021. Whereas the treasury in our current monetary system definitely does need to borrow. But what is so stimulative about draining of the reverse repo? I, I, I just think of it as just adding liquidity in the market. Let's just, just keep it simple. It's basically just adding liquidity. So if you issue coupons, you drain liquidity, bills, RRP, you're just injecting liquidity. So the, the whole point is you don't want it to go to zero. So, so, you know, the other argument I'm making as well, which could run, run counter to what we just said, once you have liquidity in the system, guys and gals that buy the AI stocks, they don't really care about where the rates are. Again, they're just going to buy, you know, SMCI up 50%, 100%. So as long as liquidity is there, you're going to see excessive behavior. And there's a lot of examples of many, many crashes whereby the Fed is warning everyone. It's like, you're being, you know, you're taking too much risk. You're taking too much risk. We're going to tighten. We're going to tighten. And then, you know, the market crashes. Well, we don't really have it here. That's why you shouldn't really rule out a 1999 scenario, by the way, because they're all trying to, you know, they all want to ease, but they can't, but they want to. So devil's advocate about, um, so, so you have two scenarios. On the first scenario is they drain the RP and then things get serious. We have like a liquidity crunch for a few months. That's for scenario number one. You know, the second scenario is that actually what if inflation does come down and then we, they stay, they, they ease like 99, uh, 1999 style. So the plumbing is really interesting, but you need to see it. It's like in, in July, it was an obvious hit for this way an obvious hit in november it was an obvious hit in uh, january it wasn't it was like a nothing burger mm-hmm. you know I, I i almost call it like schrodinger's shrub like you observe it once you observe it it don't, no longer matters like by because january, it's priced in but it's priced in because everyone's following it so even if it's gonna matter and it's gonna impact things three months down the line on the day no one cares and by the way that day i was having a the, the next day, I was having lunch with a CIO of a major private bank, and the guy was just going on about the QAR, the QAR, the QAR. <laughs> I was like, what is this guy talking about? This guy probably never watched forward guidance in his life. <laughs> but you kind of know when the guy is talking about the QAR in a group of uh, you know, sleepy private uh, bank clients that it's probably you know, the Schrodinger shrub analogy, whereby it just doesn't matter anymore. It's probably going to matter down the line, but you know, this particular one didn't matter. Right. So once, if no one's really paying attention to something, there can be an exogenous shock to that variable. And exactly. It, uh, I'm speaking like an economist. I hate it. But uh, uh, <laughs> and then okay. things are changing. But if, if everyone's worried about it, everyone's, you know, if, if everyone has deep out of the money S&P 500 puts, you know, it's very unlikely there's going to be a crash. because Exactly. Not, yeah. Exactly. Everyone observes it. Everyone cares. Like, like the whole point was in July, it was a shock because no one expected it. November was a shock on the positive side. But, you know, now everyone was kind of stressed about it. It was a nothing burger. Also, the other thing is when people are observing it, the policymakers as well are a bit more cognizant about it. So the policymakers are like, oh, damn, now they realize we issued 58% bills. We can't do that anymore, for example. So everyone is more aware and everyone plays the game. So Got it. And what's, what's your view on the economy, which in the U.S. has been you're resilient. I continue to use that word. Uh, in Europe, I don't pay attention to it that much, but it's uh, don't bother. <laughs> a little bit less less resilient. Uh, yeah. And you know, how does that impact your view on assets? I mean, do you think that 
the, the U.S. will finally get the recession that's been anticipated for close to two years? I don't know. Look, I'm still of the view that it's a re-election cycle. So, you know, you have 6% deficits. You're going to have like a it's pretty tough to get a recession with a 6% deficit. When you do get one, though, by the way, it's going to be nasty. So <laughs> something to be pretty aware of because at some point. So based on the re-election cycle, I think it's not going to be a 2024. By the way, it's a very easy thing to track is like the rate of change in the initial jobless claims. And there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing scary there. You know, if I was going to make a bet about a recession, it probably would be like a 2025 thing. But it's definitely not going to be a 2024 thing because the pump, you know, the policymakers are driven to, you know, keep the easy money going for the re-election cycle. Now, 2025, will things hit a wall? Yeah, could be. I mean, Europe isn't doing very well. We have a lot of problems here. But, you know, it's just sluggish. It's not bad. It's just sluggish. I mean, Germany is in a technical recession. The UK is in a recession. But, uh, you know, the rest is actually fine. Like, uh, I tracked some things in Greece. I mean, Greece went from the ugly duckling to, like, a booming economy. So, it's not all that bad. The other good thing about the U.S. is that it has proper stimulus, like the IRA scheme, for example. It's mm-hmm. proper slow-burning stimulus. It's like eating protein, that it's slow-burning. Like That's how it's going to play out. It's going to play out over two, three years. It's not candy. Yeah, it's not candy. It's not candy. Like QE was candy, but the IRA is like protein. Actually, that's a pretty cool thing. We should go with it. <laughs> we should, you can have yeah. it. You write it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we should write it up. I'm going to write this up. But it's true, like the IRA is going to just, it has good projects. And don't forget like the repatriation of key industries in the U.S. Americans should feel bullish about certain things in their economy. There are a lot of good things happening. Like in Europe, I'm a bit depressed sometimes, you know, like just today we're discussing about creating a joint army and raise a hundred billion. And I was thinking, wow, we're going to raise a hundred billion for a joint European army. So that's what the U.S. sends to the Ukraine and to Ukraine in one year. So, so that's kind of a different scale, unfortunately, that we're dealing with. We, we started talking about subprime, great financial crisis, and then you made a, you talked about uh, commercial real estate. How bad do you think the commercial real estate issue is? And I mean, do you think it's going to affect the banking system? And you know, I'll also remind our, our viewers that it's not just the banks that own commercial real estate loans. It's also the uh, sec- securitized markets, CMBS, uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities, and also insurance companies. I think going back to my original comment, so it's not subprime. I don't think we're going to have anything close to 08. But having said that, there's still losses that have yet to be taken. I mean, if you notice, the one thing from the latest sense of results was that the reserves of the major banks, or against CRE, has fallen as well. So I was just looking at the, the reserves of JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, all that. They had a $1.6 for every dollar of CRE. That's delinquent. That's 30 days late, actually. And that 1.6 is now 90 cents. So basically, there's a sharp deterioration already showing, and that's on the big banks. Now, the big banks, they might lose a few billion. Okay, fine. It's not the end of the world. But some smaller ones like NYCB or like the listed CLOs or, you know, we saw that bank in Japan or Deutsche Fund brief in Germany. There's always the Germans, by the way, right? So the Germans, you see a bunch of them like Ariel, Okay, that is like 2008 because the Germans are always the ones that are going to buy the crap at the end. So so basically, you do see the reserves falling in the U.S. banking space. You will have, I think you will see a few companies go bankrupt for sure. You're not going to see Bank of America 
or anything like like nowhere near. These guys are making so much money right now from everything else that it's gonna be like it's gonna be like maybe a EPS miss. It's not gonna be a it's not gonna be a capital raise. An EPS miss they can, they can handle. Yeah, I'm actually doing an interview on a Deutsche Fund profound brief bank. Uh, yeah. People should check that out. I think it, it actually might air before this one, just because things are moving quickly. I mean, I, I mm. spoke with someone and he said, you know, I was like, can you do an interview in early March? And he said, we should do it sooner because things, things are moving. Yeah, it's probably going to, I mean, that one is probably going to go uh, anyway, but I, I won't spoil it. Uh, I want to, I want to listen to your interview first because <laughs> it's, it's probably a very good trade there. Yeah. So, uh, so how systemic do you think it will be to the economy? Needless to say, subprime, 2008, I mean, it wrecked pretty much the entire global economy yeah. and left damage, you know, for years. So, what, you know, you think the systemic impact of CRE will be less or do you think it will be like near zero? It will only be, you know, some, a few small banks that go under and, you know, that, that's not going to affect the economy. It's, it's going to be just a, a few small banks, I think. I think what's more concerning, for example, in the German banks is that you have German real estate slowing down. So that would probably be a bigger headache. So... Let's put it this way. During the subprime crisis, the subprime crisis, we initially thought that it was just going to be contained to subprime, but then it spread out to everything. So come today to CRE, because, you know, in a way, it wasn't just the subprime afterwards. The investment grade also just when, you know, collapsed. So, so come back today, you have $2 trillion or whatever it is of commercial real estate. Not everything was speculative, right? You still have companies like that will keep their commercial real estate and they own it themselves. So it's not everything is, uh, will be delinquent. So, I mean, like CBRE estimated like 60 billion of losses. I think it's going to be much, much bigger than that over a few years. But if it's spread over a few years, say over a few years, it's going to be absorbed by the profit generation of the, of the banks. Now, the regional banks are a different story. The regional banks, you're always going to have, I think you will be waking up one day and say, oh my God, I didn't, what, you're going to wake up one day with signature bank type headlines, and you're going to wake up one day with uh, NYCB type headlines, and you're going to see a few CLOs blow up. Yeah, let's put it this way. Microsoft is a $3 trillion company. <laughs> like, yeah. It's going to be a bigger financial disaster if Microsoft has a profit warning, <laughs> like if like 10 regional banks go bust nowadays. <laughs> Well, uh, Microsoft is an equity and, you know, people in the equity world at least are technically supposed to know that things can go down. Whereas you know, I think what an issue is if you have something that you think of as money or like a, you think it has the risk profile of a three-month treasury bill and it actually has the risk profile of a delinquent thing that goes to zero. In terms of the average person feeling it in their wealth yeah. somehow, that's what, I, that's what I meant. But yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, in the case of a CRE, you, you're going to have a permanent write down as well. So permanent write down is much uh, uh, more impactful for the poor souls that, uh, that will get impacted. But I don't know. I mean, we are talking about big numbers. So again, to my view is that it's not going to spread, but sorry, spread. I mean, there's going to be real money lost here, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm saying it's going to be contained in a few in a number of players, not a few, many, but mm-hmm. not systemically important ones. That's what I wanted to say. But if you want to be paying attention to something, you want to pay attention if it spreads, particularly to residential. If it spreads to residential, then you worry. So, for example, we had the NYCB hit. 
it, they took two hits. One was on CRE, but the other one was on multifamily. So that one was interesting to me. But that is it's like, CRE. That's not like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, well, okay, but you know, everyone was talking about office buildings. Everyone was talking about office buildings, and we went from office buildings to multifamily, and then suddenly we start learning that there's you know financial influ- social media influencers that have been doing multifamily schemes, which, you know, I didn't know until, uh, you know, a few months ago. Um, so you start seeing, oh, geez, there's, there has been some max stupid in these pockets as well. So, so it's not just, uh, <laughs> and, you know, this is the whole thing about the shadow banking system. It always finds ways to do ma- something max stupid, like, you know, multifamily uh, backed uh, by, you know, s- social media influencers. So that's kind of max stupid. <laughs> So, so you you will you will see a lot you know you will see losses, but it won't be the end of the world. Right. And so you said a few small banks, but then you also said a signature bank. Your signature bank was was like a, a regional bank. So would you say a small bank? You're not talking about like a community bank with assets of two hundred million dollars. You, you think no, you no, just no. yeah. non non uh, GSIBs like non Correct. non Citibank, Wells Fargo, yeah. those types of institutions. Got it. Tell us about the CLO world. You said a few CLOs could fail. Are you talking about? CLOs that are full of commercial real estate loans or CLOs that are full of like senior loans to, to companies? No, look, I mean, I, I looked at just one multifamily CLO as an example. And, you know, they had like 26% of their uh, CLO uh, book was delinquent. So, you know, there's obviously like some pockets of there. So this was this particular one, I'm, you know, not going to name the name, but it's like, you know, it's, it's basically a proper deterioration in asset quality Um over the last few months. And you can see it actually just really picking up from October into January. So it was like a proper spike. It went from like you know, 10% to 26%. So, you know, there's, there, there are some, some warning signs. And, you know, this is, this is the problem of higher for longer, right? So, you know, these guys would probably be okay if they cut rates aggressively by the end of the year. They could be okay. But, you know, higher for longer, you know, these guys are not going to do well. This social media influencers levered up on multifamily, you know, they can handle it for one year, not going to handle it for three. Or even worse, people who watched the social media influencers, they get levered up. Uh, Exactly. Exactly. Right. So so how many uh, cuts do you think the Fed is going to do? Like, give me me a range of whether you want to say by the end of the year or by the end of this cutting cycle. You know, the market was pricing seven. You know, then it was five, you know, it could be four now. Tough one. Cause if you asked me before the CPI, I would say three. And now we are, where are we? Yeah, it was still like three, four. So it's implying like we're at 5.3 implied four point. Uh, yeah. Four is implying four. I'm going to say, I'm going to say they're going to cut three times. I think they really want to cut. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm taking it, talking like a hundred bits, hundred bits off. So four cuts of 25. Look, I think they really want to cut. And I thought they were going to cut in, you know, they, they, if you asked me in January, I would have said these guys really want to cut in March, but the data obviously uh, was coming uh, worse and worse. You know what? I think they're not going to wait for, to hit, to hit the 2% target. Yeah. Um, so that's why. I think they've like, made comments to that, to that effect that it's, it doesn't have to hit 2%. It has to yeah. be on, on the as, way to 2%. As long as the trend, because the one character, so we mentioned uh, Burns, we mentioned Volcker. The one character we haven't mentioned is Trichet. 
and Trichet was the head of the ECB, and I remember him very well. And, uh, you know, there's an argument. What's worse for your legacy as a central banker? Do you want to be Volcker? Do you want to be Burns? Or do you want to be Trichet? And I would probably say that we as Europeans, Trichet did way worse than Burns in some way. Because think about it this way. That's why I think they need to cut. I think they need to cut because you have some, you, you have a healthy economy, but you have some, some warning signals, like the CRE market, for example, that things shouldn't stay too high. And what Trichet did, Trichet, um, I'm trying to remember. So the Fed was seeing what was happening with subprime and the Fed was cutting cut rates in 2007, first time. Trichet, I remember he waited until Christmas 08 because he was worried about inflation. Christmas 08, so after Lehman Brothers? I think he waited, yeah. I think that's when he <laughs> that's waited. Ridiculous. I knew it. I, I knew, I, let me yeah. say, yeah, because, yeah, so that's why Trichet for us, yeah, so the Fed cut in September 07 and the jobless claims were rising. Remember when I said that you have to f- track the initial jobless claims? as an indicator, as an early indicator of the economy. You should be tracking the change in the initial jobless claims. So those were rising in 07. And you obviously had the subprime was full force back then. Well, not full force. You could see it. Like we noticed it when HSBC and BNP were losing a lot of money back then. So the Fed cuts rates in September 2007. Yeah. And then the ECB kept rates high until December 08 because they were concerned around inflation. They even raised. There was like a little raise as well. So the guy raised in, I can't remember, June or something. It was like the Trichet is like, why are you raising, man? We're like in subprime. Why are you raising rates? We saw that. It's like, you raise rates? You're crazy. So, so basically, being Trichet, like if you really want to achieve, let's put it this way. What do they want? What does Yellen want? Because what Yellen wants always, you know, Yellen gets. <laughs> Yellen wants soft landing. The policymakers want soft landing. The Fed wants soft landing. How do you get soft landing? I think if you want to get soft landing, you actually need to cut now. Because if you keep things too tight, nah, sorry, but I, I don't really believe it. Everyone thinks that be, because we're all monkeys trading stocks and the people that invest in this market, they're, you know, we, we all have a, a form of ADHD in some way and we think everything is fast moving. The economy is not fast moving. It's a tanker. It's not even a tanker. It's like, the biggest tanker in the world that you can imagine. Yeah. Imagine Titanic. That, Titanic. Like, yeah. Well, geez. I mean, now you just jinxed it. We're going to have a crash. Ah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, so it's going to take time. So if they want to just, you know, why keep rates at 5%? If you're, you know, why keep real rates so negative? Just take them down to four before it hits 3%. Don't be triche. Right. But Trump, but if you think the Fed needs to cut now to do a soft landing, Cutting, starting to cut in May, uh, March would be seven cuts. Starting in May would be six cuts. But you said only three or four. So do you think the Fed doesn't loosen enough and doesn't cut enough? Yeah, I, I think they're going to be, well, because look, I mean, the CPI, this, I, I said, because the CPI derailed their plans. But if they want to have a soft landing, they should be cutting now. Yeah. That's what I mean. And also, by the way, this goes back to our discussion about Arthur Burns versus Volcker. Because if the treasury hadn't injected that much liquidity in the system, I think the Fed would be cutting now. It would be easier for the Fed to cut. Whereas we're, you know, the, the situation we're in now is we have a hot market, hot economy, 
unemployment is low and inflation is picked up, but you have segments of the economy that cannot handle higher for longer. So it's going to be, it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be tough for them. But you still think because this election year and all the reasons you said, you still think the market does pretty well from here for, for the year, even though you think we have a pullback. I think you have to trade first what's in front of you. So you trade first the pullback and then you see how they react on the pullback and then play for the second half of the year and how deep that pullback is. Like, for example, like, I mean, we're so far above, I think the NASDAQ is at like 20% above this 200-day moving average or something. Maybe I was looking at the weekly one. Okay, let's, let's do the S&P. So the S&P is 10% above its 200-day moving average. So the S&P can drop 10% and it's still going to be in a bull market. And the NASDAQ is uh, the same. So it's about like uh, 12% above its 200-day moving average. So you know, that's a pretty big correction. We probably don't even get that. But if you get like a 5 to 8% correction to flush out some excess, you know, we still have some things. So first play for that. And then secondly, come back and say, you know what? Do we still have easy financial conditions? Are they going to cut? Are they committed for a re-election cycle? Is the AI story in its second uh, second wave? And you know, don't forget it's the one the one reason why they actually have ammo. If they manage to get a few cold CPI prints, they actually have a lot of ammo. Because if I said like they want to cut, I mean they have like it's a five percent rate and they have QT on mm-hmm. top. So in reality, this should be in a sweet spot where they're cutting QT, the cutting rates down to four percent. And we're in a Goldilocks environment. That's what they should have done. That's, but they, someone got a bit too greedy and we have too much liquidity in the system. Right. And maybe, maybe what they worry about is once they do their first 25 basis point cut, they're going to have to either continue cutting or stop cutting. And if they stop cutting, the market will think it's over and it's kind of Correct. a psychological game. Uh, Shrub, thanks so much for coming on and be very generous with your uh, insights as well as your time. Uh, people could find you on Twitter at Agnostocks with actually three X's, not two X's. Sorry, my, my eyes deceived me when I read that at the beginning. Uh, and your work uh, on, on Substack, they could find at shrubstack.com. Uh, thank you again, uh, uh, Shrub, and thank you everyone for watching. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter, where I post them regularly at JackFarley96. Thanks again. Until next time.